Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by the one and only Anthony Thompson. How are you, sir? I am very good, and I've got a head full of cotton wool. Uh, um, for those international listeners, that means a cold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but welcome back to the UK's sunny shores. Um, and you were last appeared on episode 242, uh, discussing the banking battlefield and challenger banks and things like that. So um, I'm really interested to see you know, how in the last sort of six to 12 months have you seen you know, the, your perspective of the way fintechs viewed, the way challenger banks are viewed. We'll get into your background a little bit, but I'd love just that time lapse of, of how you you see the last six to 12 months having evolved? Yeah, what's really interesting for me is, you know, Simon, I've now uh, moved to Australia. Mm-hmm. And having lived pretty much all my life in the UK and being seen UK fintech as a kind of centre of the world, it's been really interesting to view it from another perspective. So, of course, for Australia, um, Asia and uh, America tend to be the, the epicentres for them. And it's been really interesting to see how other territories are starting to respond to uh, what's going on. Uh, As you and I were just talking about a few minutes ago, Hong Kong is starting to issue licenses for digital banks. Um, I'm on the advisory board of the Arab Banking Corporation who are just about to launch a uh, digital bank in that region. Very different issues, very different challenges. Um, Although the, the central tenet, which I think we all agree is that putting the customer at the center of everything that you do, mm-hmm. we're seeing everywhere around the world. We talk a little bit about um, cargo cults at 11FS. And if you're familiar with the story of the cargo cult, this is people dressing in an outfit to fly a plane without understanding the, the mechanics of how you fly a plane. Similarly, I think there's a real cargo cult around customer centricity from a lot of the big banks where they sort of dress in all the language of customer centricity, but you can feel the difference. So what have been your insights around customer centricity? Is it, is it about you know, product? Is it about transparency? What, what would be the, the key things? Uh, for me, the, the key differentiator, as you say, everyone talks a great customer centricity story mm-hmm. today, um, both to to the press, to their shareholders, the big banks in particular. But when you look at their actions, uh, their actions belie their words. Mm-hmm. And for me, the purpose of a business is to give the customer a better product or a better service or a better experience. And as a result of that and managing your business well, you will be profitable. Mm -hmm. And the big banks talk about this, but they still focus entirely on the bottom line. And to the extent that they won't do anything that will minimize their profits even in the next quarter, let alone over the next year. Whereas everything I see about startups, and in all fairness, some of the bigger banks, is they recognize that this need to have a win-win, a great deal for the customer, can be a great deal for the bank. Uh, that, that quarter by quarter sort of psychology is really interesting to me because you see consistently you know, next quarter's results, next quarter's results driving sometimes the wrong behavior and incentives. It takes a lot of bravery to push back against that. And then on the other extreme, you have sort of the growth companies, the tech companies, the, the other folks out there who really are just looking for growth and surprising the customer. But you know, the, the, the rocks thrown at them are they'll never be profitable. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's a fair criticism? Well, there is, of course, a third dimension to this, which is the mutuals, which are not dependent upon quarterly performance. And um, I'm a great fan of mutuality. 
although I once made the mistake at the Building Society's Association of comparing it to communism, <laughs> which is, it's great in theory, uh -huh. but it tends generally to work to the benefit of the managers mm. rather than the people. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why mutuality has never fully delivered its, its potential. But to your, to your specific point about what is going to, I suppose ultimately, what's behind your question is, what will make this new breed of, of neobanks succeed? Um, we talked the last time I was here about the fact that banking per se is very capital consumptive. Mm -hmm. And we have seen there are investors prepared to follow new entrants in the market and say to them, just put on large customer numbers and we will make profit out of these people at a later date. Yeah. But there's a point at which you've got to go, we've got enough customers, now we've got to become profitable. Yeah. And you know, with Metro Bank, it took us six years to become profitable. Um, with Atom Bank, it'll it probably not going to be dissimilar. Um, pretty much everybody sets out and says, you know, we'll break even in three years, we'll IPO in three and a half years. Mm -hmm. My experience, my bitter experience over the last 11 years is everything takes longer than you think and it costs more than you think. think and it's going to come down to ultimately the nature of the providers of that capital, whether they are providers of patient capital or not. Super interesting question. I think you've uh, alluded there to a couple of things in, in Metro and Atom. Just remind uh, listeners of your involvement and in, in the brief story of uh, how Metro and Atom got off the ground sure. and sort of what led to that. And, and then I think that, that part of sort of question about patient capital we'll come back to because I think it's an interesting one. So my background is I'm a marketer by background. So I tend to look at uh, data sets to find insights that drive opportunity. And back in 2007, when I had the idea for what became Metro Bank, it was clear to me that what mattered to customers was value. And all the UK banks seemed to think the only thing that mattered was price. And I'd seen a model in America called Commerce Bank, with a CE rather than a Z, mm -hmm. um, brought that model to the UK. It became Metro Bank. And for the first four or five years, it was very, very successful, um, certainly reflected in uh, customer satisfaction scores and in shareholder returns. Uh, it was moving forward to, this was 20, 2007, uh, moving forward to 2012, I saw the most seismic shift in consumer behavior in 30 years of looking at banking data from uh, traditional banking to digital in general and mobile in particular. Um, that my colleagues at Metrobank didn't share that view so I stepped down as chairman, um, put some money together, put a team together, which became Atom Bank, which launched in 2014. Indeed. And uh, of course, Atom Bank uh, now going on to uh, kind of really move in a whole bunch of different directions and take on more and more as it goes. So um, kind of um, linking back to your point about patient capital a moment ago, I guess there's, there's different classes of investors. And we've seen, I think, increasingly in the last four or five years, uh, investors that were VCs move into kind of being a growth VC stage or people coming down from sort of the private equity space into the VC world. 
the classic one on being soft bank, you know, kind of investing massive amounts of money into some organizations, including, of course, our own Oak North here in the UK. Do you think, therefore, that as fintech has grown, um, that there are new types of patient capital out there? Or and, and has the market changed? Or is it a case of, no, we've just seen some exceptional companies make their way through to that patient capital? I think the, the challenge, for, if I can turn your question around and say from a new entrance perspective, that banks are very capital consumptive by their nature. So if you're starting a bank, you are over time going to need a lot of capital. And if you look at the, the capital availability, you go, well, it's pretty big, pretty big amount of capital. But then you go, well, we're a new business, so we are um, pre-IPO, pool of capital shrinks. Um, we are pre-profitability, pool of capital shrinks. We are pre-revenue, pool of capital shrinks. So for the startups, there is a very small pool of capital available. Mm -hmm. And what these startups need to do is bootstrap themselves to be able to prove the concept of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, I've seen it many times where the providers of substantial capital of private equity houses will look at a startup and go, you've got a license, a banking license means nothing. It has no value, literally no value. You can't show it on your balance sheet as a value. You can't sell it. So a banking license is, is meaningless. What I want you to do is de-risk your program. I want you to build it. I want you to prove it works before I put money in. Because a lot of them will say, if you ask me to put it in at a pound today, a dollar today, over the next two years, that dollar in terms of net asset value is going to go down to 70, 60 cents, 60 pence before it starts to climb up again. Why wouldn't I just wait for two years to put my money in, mm -hmm. pay a slight premium because you completely de-risked it, and at least I know that everything then works and you've got a fair chance of success, which from their perspective is very sensible. From your perspective, you go, but but I need the capital today. So I guess I, to drill underneath that though, my hypothesis is there's a new type of tech investor that's in town that wasn't interested in banking before, that is interested in monthly active users, daily active users, those, those tech um, sort of uh, metrics that, that you would look at for an Uber, that you would look at for a WeWork, that you would look at for a Twitter. Those metrics are quite different to the um, net asset value yeah, metrics yeah. that a that a banker would would look yeah. for. So, is the introduction of that type of investor? So, I look at a Peter Thiel investing in N twenty six. I look at um, now Y Combinator are rumored to be investing in Monzo yeah. um, at a two billion dollar valuation. So, is there a different class of investor in this space that's distorting that conversation? Well, I think uh, the way I would describe that is we've moved from being seen as fin tech mm -hmm. with the emphasis on the fin and therefore the emphasis on investors who invest in fin yeah. to tech fin. Yeah, um, yeah. I could make a, a, a very strong argument that uh, 86400, my new bank in Australia, is a technology play which happens to be in the financial services space. And I think exactly then, uh, to your point, Simon, there are investors who are very experienced in technology plays. So, you know, some of these guys have done incredibly well out of technology mm -hmm. plays. And they are seeing, they're saying now, we can see how technology applied to financial services can give us a similar kind of business model, grow very, very large numbers 
of users and you only need to make a small amount of money on each user if you've got a lot of users. Absolutely. So I, I think it, it's not that there are new investors. I think that the shape of the market has changed from fintech to tech fin, which has made it attractive to people who are expert in in investing in technology, which is interesting. Coming back to a point you made earlier about bankers looking primarily at balance sheet and accounting rather than customer um, is an interesting shift in the skill set needed to be able to do that, which which kind of go ahead. I was going to say, but but ultimately, however you want to look at it, these people look to a return on the capital that they employ and And it tends to be high risk capital. So if you're putting money into startups, Typically, you're looking for 25, 30% return on capital. Um, so it's great saying, let's build large customer numbers. It's great saying, let's build a marketplace. But ultimately, there has to be a way to monetize that. Because back to our previous point, yeah, I'm a great believer that profit is a byproduct of doing something well for the customer. Yeah. But ultimately, you need to make profit. Otherwise, the, you go out of business. The people who put up the risk capital need to be rewarded. The people who work in the business need to be rewarded. Um, you need to retain profits to grow the business, uh, in banking particularly, to, to support uh, and underpin the growth in your assets. So I think there is only so long we can keep the build it and they will come model. Interesting. Eventually, people are going to say, Show me how you're going to make money. And, and you've seen, I think, a few famous examples where they built it and they did come. So, you know, for every Facebook, there's 10 failed versions. There's a thousand failed versions where they, you know, they acquired users and they never got the revenue model there in place. And so we had on episode 299, we had Tom Blomfeld who basically said, look, he freely admitted that the marketplace model hasn't proven itself yet. But actually, the customer centricity part of what they do, he feels very comfortable about, and they're seeing growing usage. So I think the intellectual honesty to admit that, I think, is is, is really, really key. Um, you alluded to the 86400 there in terms of uh, your new sort of uh, bank that you're building in Australia. Tell us a little bit about that, and, and what's the gap in the Australian market that you think needs filling? Well, interestingly, the Australian market is very much like the UK market demographically. Uh, it's built, Australia's built on the UK legal system. Uh, the regulatory system very much follows the UK. So in terms of demographics, uh, legal and regulatory framework, it was a market I was very familiar with. But actually, and I hope there's nobody listening to this, I'll tell you just between you and I, <laughs> the reason, the reason uh, I moved to Australia was a lifestyle decision. Mm-hmm. My, my wife and I decided that we'd like to go live there for a few years. Um, and whilst looking at the market, I met uh, the managing director of Cuscal. Cuscal is um, the largest provider of payments, independent provider of payments in Australia. It's regarded as systemically the fifth most important bank in Australia because they put a hundred and odd companies through the payment rails. So whilst they don't act as a bank, they're regarded as so systemically important. And the managing director, a chap called Craig Kennedy, had identified that the future of banking in Australia was going to be mobile. They had a lot of the resources, experience, and expertise. They'd never built a bank. I'd built a couple, mm-hmm. so it was a, a great meeting of minds. But they are they're very serious, very well-organized uh, people. At, at my stage in life, I only work with people I like, and uh, 
pains me to admit it, but I quite like the guys out there. Ah, uh, yeah. It, it is annoying when you have to admit that we really, really love the Australians, bless them. And, and Cuscal, um, in my dealings with them, have, have been exactly the same. Tremendously impressive company. Um, so uh, tell us about the name, H6400. What's the story there? We were s- sitting in a workshop in Coogee, which is a little bay, a uh, terrible hotel in a, in a bay somewhere, having a, a workshop <laughs> talking about our vision and our values and what we were going to do. And the central conceit of, of, of the bank is, uh, we know from research, and you'll be familiar with this, that most people are struggle to manage their money. They, they don't feel that they're in control of their money. Absolutely. And we thought we can use big data, data analytics, artificial intelligence to look at your money every second of every minute of every hour of every day mm-hmm. so that you don't need to. And one of our engineers, in fact, popped up and said, 86,400. And we went, what? He said, it's the number of seconds in a day. Interesting. And we thought this is great because it, it just epitomizes everything that we stand for. That's which such is such an engineer thing to say as well. <laughs> but it's actually resonated incredibly well with consumers. Really? And once you tell them the story, they get it instantly. Yeah. And as a name, you go, why is it? Just, oh, yeah, you're the bank that looks after my money every second of every minute. Of every day, so uh, we feel very good about it. We I, feel very. I will, of course, claim it was my idea. Uh, of course, at so, some point in the future. Uh, of course. This deal sets apart a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Clearly, the pressure is beginning. British jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Calling all fintechs, banks, developers. Are you looking at ways to use new open APIs to create the next financial app? Are you looking to break into new markets, the USA in particular? Finastra and Microsoft are hosting the Fusion One Developer Conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May 2019, down at Tobacco Dock. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill in open APIs Understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8,000-strong client base with your apps and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion One today online at fusionone.cloud. Join the open banking revolution because, after all, we're all innovators. I love that idea, though, of, of um, consumers, like the biggest thing, every time we do a customer survey, every time I talk to customers, that I'm not in control of my money. Uh, how am I doing versus last month? I, you know, Am I going up? Am I going down? Can I afford to make this payment? Um, when will I get paid? And just what's that on my statement? I'm a bit worried about it. Simple things like that seem to be things that people ignore. And, and again, if you're looking at the P&L and the balance sheet, you're looking at, well, do I have the deposits? You're not looking at is the customer getting that experience? And if somebody else comes and gives me a better experience, am I going to lose all of that day-to-day transaction activity? It's a a great point because I believe fundamentally there are only two metrics that matter, which is customer satisfaction and customer advocacy. Mm -hmm. If I have very, very satisfied customers recommending me to their friends 
all my other metrics will fall out of that. Absolutely. And your marketing cost goes to near zero if you've got true customer advocacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this is one of the things we learned very early on in, in Metro Bank, which was 40% of our new customers came as recommendations from wow. our existing customers. So it, in effect, is halving the cost of your customer acquisition. Yeah. So building that customer advocacy is so important. But you're only going to get it if you're giving the first customer a really great experience. I think there's something really interesting. Like If you were to ask the CEO of any bank, would you like to half the cost of customer acquisition? Or the CFO of any bank, would you like to half the cost of customer acquisition? They'd say, yes, absolutely. But when you look at the work that's required to really get into the nuances of product, I think understanding what makes great digital product is often that it's that understanding gap of how to get there. I think everybody wants it, but they don't know I how to get there. I think there's an even more generic problem than that, which is you say to the chief exec of a big bank, would you like to halve customer acquisition costs? Yes, yes of course I would. He doesn't actually care because he's not that bothered about acquiring customers. Mm. They have such huge customer bases that you know, they lose 300,000 customers there and they gain 300,000 customers there. And mm -hmm. at the end of the year, if they're at 17 million customers or 16 and a half million customers or 17 and a half million customers, it doesn't actually yeah. move the dial hugely for them. What does move the dial hugely for them is maximizing the profit yes. of individual customers. Yeah. And that's their mindset instead of, if we make customers happier, they'll spend more with us. That's an interesting point uh, of where profit can come from. So as your observations now, having got 86,400 off the ground in Australia, have you observed any key differences with doing it there versus having done it here? Well, we're not quite off the ground. We're, we're in this rather bizarre uh, situation of the bank is actually built and operational. And I have in my pocket somewhere um, our operating debit card. So I've actually been using that in London, and it's all working um, very well. But we're not yet authorised. So we will. We yeah, we're at the uh, behest of the regulator. We we think we're pretty close to the end of the process. We'd like to think in the next you know, roughly eight weeks or so we'll we'll be authorised. But then we're ready to go live in the marketplace. Um, we've got our trans. For technical reasons, I won't bore you with today. We're allowed to operate about 100 uh, transaction accounts, as we call them in Australia, currency accounts, as we call them here. Um, and they're all working great. Um, but we can't open that up to the general public until you, uh, we're fully licensed. And you've got to get that full authorization yeah. before you yeah. can go yeah. beyond those those test accounts. Yeah. So but, you know, I've, I've been to this rodeo before. This Indeed. is my first rodeo. So we, yeah, we'll get licensed. Um, and in two or three years, whether we got licensed in March or April or May, we won't even remember. Yeah. The important thing is we've got to keep focused on how can we give the customers a better product, a better service, a better experience. I think that experience focus is, is really, really crucial. And yeah, the timing just, just won't matter. I think it's interesting as you look back then from you know, kind of this journey with 86400 and you look at Atom and Metro, I guess you love all of your children equally, but what would you say the, the, the things that you might have done differently in each scenario would be, or do you have any views in terms of what you learned from those? I think it, it, your latter point is, is, is the best one. It really has been an, an evolution. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Metro, as I say, I first thought of it in 2007, which was really a sort of branch-based 
environment. Um, Atom was the kind of evolution to, well, if you're going to start a bank today, you would start a, a mobile first bank. It was pretty early on in that whole process. We were feeling our way forward in terms of the technology that was available and how we pulled it together and, and how we used that in terms of the customer proposition. And uh, 86400 is, if you like, the evolution from that. It's um, four years later, technology's moved on. Um, the way it's been put together, I think, is, is cleverer, only because we have all of that experience to, to build upon. And it's later. And it's later. But the, the one thing I think that all three banks have in common is this absolute relentless focus on the customer. I think that's uh, a consistent theme that, that's coming out without question. As you look, you know, as you get into the notary and tear back the, the curtain a little bit and look at the vendor landscape that's sort of sitting underneath that, do you think that's evolved from the days of Metro and when you were mm. starting that off to now? And, and how would you say it's changed? Yeah, I think back in back in the day, it makes me sound really old, mm. you know, a million years ago when we sat at Metro Bank, uh, you would typically look at one of the big vendors, the Fiserv, FIS, Temenos, Infosys, to provide most of that mm -hmm. infrastructure. And they would all claim with varying degrees of, uh, of authority to be able to provide all of it. And, yeah. and as you might recall, um, I was instrumental in working with um, Fiserv to create agility as a software as a service model. So I declare my interest there. But um, I think today people are looking more at the, the, the ledger, the system of record as just the base plumbing utility. And they're seeing smarter, more effective, more efficient options for building out that middleware. Mm -hmm. And indeed in Australia, um, fantastic team of, of engineers have put together an entirely interoperable middleware piece. Mm -hmm. So it's all API connected. So if if a better means of credit scoring comes up than the one we're using today, we can unplug this one, plug a new one in. So I think we've been able to build it today in a way that future proofs it in a way that wasn't available to us even three years ago. Which I think is interesting. We talk a lot about that microservices architecture, that ability to pull something out easily and, and replace it with something else, or that ability where if a piece of the platform goes down, you don't have a full outage. And, and some of the real customer benefits that, that kind of come with that. Um, would you sort of see if you were sitting in a different CEO's um, position and they were sort of um, in, in an incumbent, would you see sort of moving in that direction as critical or would you see, you know, the sort of the, the board pushing for next quarter as critical? And how would you start to have that conversation based on the experience you've had? They, they, they have a big problem. And, and the problem, unfortunately, is not one that can necessarily be resolved by money because new and better uh, architected IT platforms exist. I mean, you guys build them. You, you know this. So why aren't all of the big banks, who've certainly got the money, switching from existing old-fashioned platforms on which it's estimated 70% of their expenditure goes simply on maintenance? Why aren't they switching to new super-efficient platforms? Um, and the reason is not the availability of the new platform. Mm -hmm. It's all about the ability to migrate data. 
And if, if we look in the UK at the, the big um, platform migrations that have been tried, the co-op, um, nationwide. Um, I guess Williams and Glynn. Williams and Glynn. Uh, there was one other, its name escapes me. Um, it was not, the reason they failed was not the availability of the technology. Mm -hmm. It was the inability to migrate the data satisfactorily. And this is something the regulator looks very, very closely at because um, they don't mind if your IT fails and it costs you money as a bank. Mm -hmm. They will not countenance your IT failing and it not working for the customer. And that's a really interesting perspective, isn't it? And it reminds us of what regulation is there for. Um, it, it's not to prevent your pain as a bank, it's to prevent your pain as a, as a customer. I think it's a, a key point. Um, we have seen successful migrations, of course, in, in your new homeland. Um, Michael Hart, when he was at um, ComBank Australia, did manage to do one of those data migrations, but took five years to do it and did it much more gradually. Yeah. And I think the kind of the quarter by quarter, next quarter's profit doesn't always allow for that. So you, yeah. the buy-in and the courage to sort of go on that journey. And even then, they were moving from sort of legacy vendor to an upgraded version of that software rather than to, to the new platform. But I, I would personally hope there's, there's hope out there for those banks. So. Well, because I think a lot of them don't see it as a burning platform issue. Mm, and it's only when it becomes a burning platform issue. Because if you're a CEO of a big bank, there's a massive risk attached to doing that. Yeah. Why don't you just keep on making money and leave that to your successor to sort out. Indeed, uh, next guy's problem, right? Yeah. Uh, classic one. All right, so I'm gonna get to some uh, sort of generic questions. You've done all right in your career and hopefully our, our listeners and our viewers can take some, some insights from you. So um, what's the um, biggest lesson you've taken over your career? What advice would you give to somebody who may be listening to this, is in finance or tech and just cares about this industry? Um, pretty much, every, I, I guess the, the key lesson I've learned is, and it, it comes from driving, one of my hobbies is, is, is track driving. <clears throat> and what the instructors say is, look where you want to go. Mm. Keep your eyes on the prize. Um, and the reason people drive into trees is because they see a tree and they fixate on the tree and, mm. and they run into it. How does that translate into, into what I've done? One of the things is when you're building a business, you are myopically focused on the next thing. And often that's getting licensed. So everybody goes, we've got to get licensed, we've got to get licensed. Everybody's focused on getting licensed. Then you get licensed, you go, oh, well, licensed. Oh, got to focus on getting customers. Got to focus on getting, got to focus on getting the next product out. And, and I think what I've learned is, and what I try and share with my, my colleagues at 86400 is, we're going to get licensed. We didn't build a bank to get licensed. We build a bank to give a great customer experience. Mm -hmm. and if you build a bank to give a great customer experience, you will get licensed. So I think it's just raise your eyes above the parapet and say, what do we want this business to look like in three or four or five years' time? Interesting. And then just work back and say, are we delivering what needs to be done today for three, four, five years' time? Not are we delivering today what needs to get us licensed next month or the next product drop in three months? or the next customer segment in six months. I think it's that ability to look forward, which again, the quarter, quarter by quarter thing um, sort of uh, doesn't help with. And, and I think it helps I've got old. You know, I can... Uh, You've got that patience. It's, yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of really... Mind at my age, I can't look too far forward. You know? uh, well, you know, I can lend you these. It's, um, we'll, we'll help out. Um, so uh, 
thanks very much for joining us on Fintech Insider. Where can people find out more about you and what you're doing with H6400? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I have my addresses anthony.thompson at 86400.com.au. Um, it's always great to be here and it's always great to hear from people. I, as a result of doing this the last time, I got some great conversations and, and questions and, and things from people. So um, so it's great for me to do it. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, we're, we're very happy to have you. And uh, listeners, just as a reminder, uh, if you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Review us on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. You've no idea. It's so much fun. Um, and uh, pass the podcast along. Um, if you know anybody who loves fintech, just let them know that we're here um, and tell them about the show. And uh, as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. <laughs>